0: I invite uh, the rest of us to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Our passage this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say this, this, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: Well, good morning. I invite you, um, as we prepare to consider this passage further, to join with me in prayer. Father, here in these words... um, not only have you granted your servant Isaiah a vision of you, but as we hear them, uh, your Holy Spirit enables us to see this as well. And so, Lord, that is my prayer, that is our prayer, that you would help us to see you, that you would give us a deeper awareness of the reality of who you are and who we are before you, and that you would change us, that you would fill us with a delight in your love, that we too might be people who say, here we are, send us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know, uh, sometimes in movies, uh, it can start kind of disorientingly. You can be right dropped in the middle of action, or maybe there's a battle going on, and you find yourself wondering what's happening, what's going on, it's meant to be confusing, and then all of a sudden when the confusion kind of seems to be at its height, suddenly the screen goes dark, and it says six months earlier, and suddenly you're brought back to a previous moment to give you a sense of what's going on here. Have you you seen movies like that? It's it's, it's a common way sometimes of kind of bringing you right into the action. Well, I want to say, but I think actually Isaiah does the same thing. That in the book of Isaiah, we have had five chapters that are somewhat disorienting. Remember chapter one brings us right into the middle of the battle, there are cities that are in ruins, there are armies everywhere, we are told about both the need to be humbled and also the future and it's a bit disorienting and then at the very end of chapter five, maybe as our confusion is peaked, we suddenly see the screen 40 years earlier. It doesn't say it exactly like that, but 6 verse 1 says, in the year that King Isaiah died. Isaiah is now saying, hey, this is a flashback. I'm now bringing things back 40 years ago to the moment that Isaiah became a prophet. But the sentence says more than just 40 years ago. The, the sentence says what this whole moment is about. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Now that is a hook that can get our attention. Is there any question that is more important to answer than this one? Who is God? I mean, who is God? What is He like? We we hear about Him, we think about Him, but what would it be like if we came face to face with the God of the universe? What would we feel? What would we see? Well, Isaiah doesn't have to wonder that question anymore because he has experienced the answer. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He doesn't tell us how this happens, whether this was a vision or whether he was actually physically transported into this place. But what we do know is suddenly Isaiah, probably completely unexpecting this, was transported into the heavenly throne room of God. And we're given some of the details. There is a a smell. He smells smoke and he sees smoke filling the air. He is trembling because the earth itself repeatedly trembles. And as he looks in front of him, he sees on, on, on both his left side and on his right side rather terrifying creatures, creatures that he calls seraphim, The word seraph just literally means fiery one. This is a creature of fire. Um, Sometimes in some of the movies that we watch, these are the way monsters are depicted. Remember like the Balrog in The Lord of the Rings or even in Thor Ragnarok, the creature at the very beginning, these creatures that are like nothing but fire. Well, Isaiah actually is seeing creatures like that. Uh, They are human in form. We're told that they have faces and hands and feet and yet at the same time they have three pairs of wings. Can you imagine what it'd be like to encounter what we would call a monster like that? I mean, just think today, you know, you go downstairs, you go to treats, you find yourself in the the hallway, and suddenly before you is a creature completely of fire who is flying and is filling the hallway, and you're right in front of it. What would you do in that moment? I mean, we know, it's not like we'd be like, hey, good to see you. No, we wouldn't do that. We would pull back, we would be afraid, and if we don't have anywhere to hide, we would cover our faces. And yet, as Isaiah sees these two fiery creatures, he realizes they are covering their faces. Their wings are covering their faces because they dare not look at the one who was seated between them, God himself. God himself. But somehow Isaiah does. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now now notice as he describes, it's like his eyes only go up so far. He he says he sees a robe that's filling the room and it says he sees the throne that's high and exalted but when his eyes go above, he says nothing more. It's as if I think there is nothing more that he could say. Every word as he is daring for a moment to gaze above and seeing God seated on the throne, every word seems empty, seems trivial, seems inappropriate to speak of what he in his terror is beholding. And so he doesn't even try. Instead, he tells us more about what he hears. There is this devastatingly beautiful song that he hears these fiery creatures sing a refrain back and forth the same words again and again holy 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 is the lord god almighty the whole earth is full of his glory in hebrew if you are wanting to emphasize something one of the ways you can do it is through repeating it so if you say the same word twice it's like you know you're putting it in bold or underlining it it's saying this is important if you say something three times it's like you've made it all caps and it's like a hundred point font this is so central so significant there is nothing truer than this that the lord of hosts is holy now to say that is important and yet at the same time it is not easy to understand because the word holy is an extraordinarily difficult word to define because really what holy is is what makes God, God. Holy is the word that we use to say why God is worthy of our worship and nothing else. Holy speaks to the greatness of God, his, his power and his majesty and his eternity and it also speaks of the goodness of God, his his, his lovingness, his, his righteousness, His beauty. As these two seraphim are singing, the Lord is holy, they are saying, you, God, are worthy of worship. You are worthy of obedience. You are worthy of praise. You are above and beyond anything else. And yet, even as they are saying that there is nothing like you, O God, at the very same time, they are also saying that everywhere still we see evidence of you. The whole earth is full of his glory. And even as they sing it, the earth responds in agreement by shaking. Yes, this is true. Think of what it's saying. We live in an extravagantly wild and enchanted world full of wonder and yet so often we are anesthetized, we are numbed to its reality. We we study the laws of the universe, the the, the intricacies of atoms, the the galaxies light years away and string theory, the complexities of DNA and, and how the brain works, and it all works, and yet we shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, that that's to be expected. Why? Why should we expect something like this is true? We, we encounter beauty, the aching beauty of, of, of songs or of a, an ocean sunset or of a person's face. And we treat it as if it is nothing, as if it is no more than something that our brains make up we we live and encounter life and experience love and see a baby being born and a person entering this world and yet somehow we fail to recognize the transcendence that is everywhere around us even sometimes religion can do this where sometimes religion can seem to be about nothing more than just telling us what's practical and comfortable and letting us know that everything's okay and yet all around us the world is shouting at us glory It is declaring for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear that there is a holy God, that He is the God of the laws of physics that makes all things orderly and beautiful and good. Everywhere around us there is glory and yet we are oblivious to it. There's a poem um, that I think states this well. uh, it says, "Faith is crammed sorry, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. That This is Isaiah. Isaiah, until this moment, was one who who walked as if there was no glory around him, but no longer. Perhaps some of you have heard um, of Plato's allegory of the cave. If you took any philosophy, maybe you're familiar with this. Plato, you know, many, many, many centuries ago writes and asks us to imagine that there is... People who are chained up to a cave, and chained up in such a way that the only place their head can ever look is at the wall of a cave. That's all they've ever seen from their infancy. And behind them, there is a fire casting some light, and there are creatures who are making shadow puppets. So their whole life, they are only on this wall seeing these shadow puppets moving around. Sometimes sounds are made, and for them, this is their reality. This is all they know. Life is about figuring out what's going on with those shadow puppets. And he says, imagine if at one point one of these people who are bound in the cave is able to get free. And he turns around and he realizes that there's a fire that's been around the whole time. But more than that, he notices that there is a light in the distance and he starts moving towards it. And he comes out of the cave and he recognizes that there is a deeper amount of reality that he never conceived of before. And he sees the sun and it burns and it is painful. That's what is happening to Isaiah right in this moment. To this point, he has been living as if it's nothing more than shadow puppets. He's been going to work. He's been with his family. He's been going through rituals, going to church as if things were just on the surface, and suddenly he is brought, and he sees there is so much more. He realizes that everywhere there is glory, and, and he is in pain, and the pain is not just because of the brightness of God, the pain is actually because of the darkness within Him. He says, woe to me, for I am lost. And, and that word lost actually is probably even better translated, I am destroyed. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. Have you ever, um, when you're driving along a highway and uh, you're not really paying attention to how you're driving, maybe you're in a good conversation, and you're not really paying attention to how fast you're going, and suddenly out of the corner of your eye, you realize you are seeing a police car right there clocking you. Do you know what that feels like where suddenly you're like, your heart kind of just falls down to the floor of your stomach and you realize like, you weren't even paying attention, you didn't even know what you were doing before, but now you realize that, that you have been speeding, you've been breaking the law, and you are caught, and you know you're almost certainly going to get a ticket. Do you know what that feels like? I imagine Isaiah in this moment feels like that times like a million because for the very first time he is seeing himself differently he is seeing his life not through his own eyes but through the eyes of a king of a judge and he he says my my mouth is unclean. And and this is what, you know, in literary circles they call synecdoche. That is, he's speaking of a part to represent the whole. The, The lips is where our heart kind of shows itself, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when he's saying his lips are unclean, he's actually speaking about his whole self. He's saying, I am broken. I am dirty. I am wrong. And I should say, he is not overreacting here. This is not just a panic moment for Isaiah where he's being overly down on himself and the stress of this, of this time. He is stating things truly because in this very moment before God, every bit of self-deception has been torn away and he sees himself for the first time. Because we've, we've spoken about this. Sin is very good at deceiving us. As long as we are living at this level of this world, as long as we are seeing ourselves through the eyes of others, whenever we're talking about things, people saying, yeah, that's good, that makes sense, and we're feeling approved of, whenever we compare ourselves to others and realize that we're roughly at the same place, maybe even better than some, then we feel good. But there will be a day where we appear before the face of God. And then we will see ourselves not through other people's eyes or through our own eyes, but through God's eyes. And and then we will compare ourselves to the beauty and the glory of God. And if it is the very first moment we have experienced this, like Isaiah, we will be undone. I think if we step back and think about this experience for Isaiah, it makes sense of us why he is so passionate about these first five chapters as he is calling Israel to see, as he's calling Israel to be humbled, because he is saying, get out of the cave. Don't you see there is a holy, glorious God? How can you possibly allow yourself to be proud before this God? Come and humble yourself. Do you not see? But we should recognize that this is only the first part of really kind of two parts to the vision. Here, Isaiah sees one part of who God is, but he doesn't see the whole thing yet. So if we continue on with this vision, we will recognize that that as Isaiah is broken, as he is just broken, On the floor, he has melted something extraordinary and strange. Another strange thing, an already strange moment happens, and one of the the fiery creatures takes the tongs, and he goes to the very heart of an altar that's there. There's a fire that's there, and he grabs one of the coals, and in his hand, he brings the coal, and he brings it right before Isaiah, ready to touch Isaiah's mouth. And can you imagine what Isaiah must have been feeling in that moment? I think he probably would have concluded, this is it. I deserve to die, and now God is destroying me. And so then the seraph takes the coal and touches Isaiah's lips. And we don't know what it feels like. We're not told whether it was painful or whether God protected Isaiah from experiencing the pain. But what we do understand is that this wasn't to destroy Isaiah. This was to heal him. Because we see the second thing the seraph says. First, the seraph had declared the glory of God, his holiness. When secondly, now the seraph declares the grace of God and his forgiveness. It says, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Do you hear what this is saying? This is a miracle. That, that wretchedness that you see within yourself, the sin, the guilt, the fact that you know that you deserve to die, all of that is true, and now it's gone. This is, this is the unexpected happy ending. This is when you think that you're about to lose everything, and you're told that your debt has been completely paid, and it's a surprise to you. This is when you are in stage four cancer, and you come to the doctor's office and say, I don't understand, but you're completely healed. This is when you have so destroyed a relationship through betrayal, and yet they say to you, I forgive you, and they give you a hug. God spoke of this. Remember in chapter 1, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This is what Isaiah is experiencing in this moment, and 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 you should recognize this is not because Isaiah did anything to bring this about I mean for all we know Isaiah was just like everyone else in Israel having problems with idolatry kind of a religious hypocrite someone who was just at times going through the motions someone who wasn't as faithful to God as he should have been and and when he comes before God in this moment it's not like suddenly he says I'm going to turn my life around there's no promises of repentance that he makes there is no expression of faith in God's promises there is not even a cry for help the only thing that he does is says I am destroyed he just names himself and yet and yet god sends the seraph to absolutely completely heal him it's not because of anything about isaiah it's because of everything about god we, we will not understand this moment. I think, honestly, I think this is even harder for us to grasp than the first part. God is beyond our ability to comprehend. He will, we will never say, oh, I know what it's like to be God. He's that far beyond us. But what he does make absolutely clear in this moment and throughout Scripture is this untamed, wild, extraordinary God is a God who is thoroughly committed to bringing about your good. This is a God who, for reasons we will never understand, is passionately gracious, who loves to love, who delights to bring delight and forgiveness to failing, foolish, faithless people like Isaiah, like the people of Israel, and like me. Like you, can you imagine in this moment what Isaiah must have been feeling? I, I, like as I'm trying to think of what he's probably at this moment, he is he is on the floor weeping. Because he has just experienced the most devastating reality, the truth about who he is, and it is unbearable. And yet, in the moment that it seems like that truth is going to utterly break him, suddenly he is completely cleansed. His sin is gone. His guilt is gone. There is nothing more to fear about. He is now able to stand in the presence of the beautiful, glorious God without fear. It would completely overwhelm him. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be him in that moment? Actually, I think the answer to that in some senses, is yes, we can. I mean, we've not experienced that level of drama, most of us, probably none of us in fact have. But if you have truly heard the gospel of Christ Jesus and have come to believe in it, this is your story as well. See, the, the coal of the altar was meant as a sign pointing beyond itself to what God was going to do in the future. What, what he was signifying is that he was going to not eventually bring a coal or send a coal. He, he, he will send his son into this world, and the altar is actually the cross, and, and the cleansing that he would do was not through the fire, but through the blood of Christ Jesus, But the reality of what is being promised is the same to those who have come to recognize their emptiness, who have come to recognize their sinfulness. God says, behold, I have sent my son and he has died for you. Your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. Let me ask you, do you know that that is true? As hard as it is to to sometimes see the reality of that first part, this is the part that I think we oftentimes turn away from and say that cannot possibly be real. But when the Spirit opens our eyes to realize that, yes, we have a God who has forgiven us, who has loved us, and the weight of our sin is completely gone, it changes us. And it certainly changed Isaiah. Do you see how suddenly things have shifted? Right after this, we finally, for the first time here, God himself speaks. And he he asks this question, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah just raises his hand and says, I'm right here. Please send me. Here I am. Send me. And he's asking not because of fear, because the fear is gone. He's asking out of desire. Because the thing is, when you experience a love like this, when you experience a grace like this, it causes you within your very soul to love in return and to long to serve a God who is this good. And so for the rest of his life, that is what he does. So, as we come to a close, close, I want us to just kind of consider for a moment why Isaiah tells us of this vision. It's not so that we can recognize, wow, what a cool person Isaiah is, or what an amazing moment that was. Isaiah tells us at this point because he recognizes, maybe in hindsight, that this whole experience is meant as a sign to help God's people understand what God's plan is for them and for us. If you were to pay attention to what God instructs Isaiah to say, you would recognize that it seems very, well, unhopeful. God is basically saying, okay, Isaiah, I am sending you, and as I'm sending you, everything you say is going to have the effect of hardening people's hearts. They're not going to hear. You are going to see by the end of your life this nation virtually destroyed. Go get them. And you would have think that would have caused Isaiah to despair, except he knows that however you think of this, that is only part one of the story. He understands that the purpose here is to to bring God's people out of the cave, is to help them to come to see the things that they've been hiding from themselves, to, to open their eyes, to recognize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of themselves so that they can come to the place where they can say, woe is us, for we are a people of unclean lips and we are before a holy God. Because Isaiah knows that once that happens, then part two of the story will take place. That this God who has healed him also desires to heal them. That his plan is also to be able to say to them, behold, I have taken away your sin and your guilt is covered over. So that they, in response of joy, can say here, we are your people, send us. And that's actually why we continue to still be given this vision to consider, because God wants us to understand what is real and what is true. Some of you this morning perhaps have been living kind of like isaiah was before you're surrounded by glory and beauty and yet it's easy to just forget it all because of the busyness of the moment you are experiencing sleepwalking and i hope you hear god telling you i am here and i am real wake up i am holy and the whole earth is full of my glory. My prayer is that you would come to recognize that you are in the presence of your King. Others of you, I suspect, who are here this morning are completely weighed down by the reality of your own sin. Maybe you don't use that word. Maybe you call yourself a failure. It doesn't matter, but you're recognizing that who you are is not who you should be, and it's breaking you And I want you to hear God telling you, my grace is real. My son has died for you. Understand, if you trust in him, your sin is completely taken away from you. Your guilt is completely covered. It is no more in my sight. It is real. And some of us at least to some degree have come to recognize both the reality of God being our king and our sinfulness and also have come to taste in the grace of God and of course we're continuing to grow in it but it's it's at least dawning in our eyes and I I pray that you and I would come to hear this other part that God declares to us behold my mission is real Because the the, the central plot line of this world is not about us getting our kids through college or being able to make enough money to keep going. It's not about the plot line between Democrats and Republicans or between nations. No, the thing that drives this world is the story of how God right now is rescuing this world how he is making all things new, how he is drawing people to himself and he says he wants to do it through his church and so he says, whom shall I send and who will go for me? There are people who are in darkness. There are those who do not know Christ. There are people who are weighed down by their guilt. There are people who are sleepwalking. Who will go for me to tell them and to show them my glory? And my prayer is that you and I would come to recognize that the single greatest privilege we have in this life is to be able to say to the God who loves us, here we are, send us. Wherever we are as, as we are hearing God speak to us through this word, I invite us now to spend some time in responsive prayer, whether it's confession or asking for help in some area, And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment's time. Father, as we try, even now, to understand what it means that we are speaking to you, as we think of what that means, that that the holy God of the universe is here with us, and as we begin to, to see even more deeply who you are, our soul quakes at that reality we acknowledge that we have no right on our own to come before you. And yet, Lord, you tell us to. You you tell us that in Christ Jesus, we can come before you and ask you anything. You invite us to confess our sins, telling that we don't need to be afraid because Christ has completely dealt with them. And so, Lord, we, before you, acknowledge our sins we acknowledge our, our forgetfulness of you as we are surrounded by reminders of you everywhere. We acknowledge our lack of faith in you, our lack of confidence that your love could be real. Lord, we forget our calling to be your servants in this world. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and, and And even beyond asking for that, we ask for your renewal. You have given us your spirit who helps us to see what we could not see before. We ask that your spirit would strengthen us, deepen our awareness of you, and of your love. Help us to see Jesus more clearly and help us as your church to be those who faithfully follow your lead as you send us into this world. And we pray this all only through Jesus, who has died for us. Amen. So, having confessed our sins, let me just take us back to the very passage we were considering, and and consider what we saw with Isaiah. When Isaiah said, "'Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for." Followers of Christ who have confessed your sins know this. Through Christ, your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for. You Are righteous in God's sight. Thanks be to God.